Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Richard Dawkins is a well-known writer and atheist whose best-selling book, The God Delusion, has really become the centerpiece piece of literature for the atheist movement in our country. And one statement in particular from Dawkins' book has been popularized and uh, reused, repeated all across the internet and in various publications. It's Dawkins' statement that, quote, when one person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion, end quote. That statement encapsulates the growing sentiment through our nation and our society about you. If you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is, uh, the, the, on a popular level at least, the common explanation of why you believe what you believe. The increasing idea that anyone who believes in a religion has some sort of psychological deficit or some sort of intellectual deficit, some sort of flaw fundamentally in their thinking. And Dawkins and others assume that faith then is essentially incompatible with intellectual rigor, with sophisticated thinking. And so Dawkins writes in his book, quote, religion is scarcely distinguishable from childhood delusions like the imaginary friend and the boogeyman under the bed. Unfortunately, the God delusion possesses adults. A delusion is something that people believe in, in spite of a lack of total evidence. In another place, he writes, one of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it's a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding, end quote. That's you in the minds of the world around you. You're here, you gather here this morning, you read the Bible, you listen to all these things, you read, uh, excuse me, you sing these uh, songs, you listen to sermons, because you've buried your head in the sand, because you have somehow turned away from understanding, because you are afraid of the facts, because you don't want to Uh, be engaged in any kind of rigorous intellectual enterprise that might expose the the, uh, lack of foundations of your belief. You're delusional. What you believe is incompatible with adulthood. And it's only satisfactory to people who don't want real answers to real questions. Well, apart from all the false assumptions made by these atheists that somehow better answers to the most important questions of life and death come from their personal observations of the world. Dawkins and others have gravely gravely misunderstood the nature of faith because while it It may not reason according to their natural assumptions. While faith may not arrive at its place based on their own empirical evidence, it is far from unreasonable, far from an effort to avoid understanding. Faith often looks square in the face of hopeless situations, 
of all the evidence that may come against it from a naturalistic point of view. And it is right there that faith often takes its stand. It's the character of true faith. It isn't blind acceptance of some tradition without asking questions. The character of true faith is a faith that is tried and tested in the face of the most difficult situations of life. The character of true faith has faced claims and arguments and rationalizations that are hurled against it. And in the end, true faith has determined that God and His Word is the most reasonable and reliable opinion, the most reasonable and reliable, uh, I should say, uh, uh, argument that has ever been proposed. Now, now that sketch, if you will, of faith really summarizes our passage this morning in Romans chapter 4. The nature of saving faith is really what Paul is getting at at the end of Romans chapter 4, and he does it through the familiar story of the life of Abraham. Paul has been presenting Abraham in this chapter and really in this book as the centerpiece of his entire argument that people are accepted by God, that people stand before God not based on what they do, but based on what they believe. It is by their belief, not by their deeds, that they have their sins wiped away, that they stand before God righteous and justified. We call it justification by faith. It's the cornerstone doctrine of the Christian church and of the book of Romans. But key to even this doctrine is the nature of faith. Because we all recognize that there is such a thing as a superficial faith. There are those whose faith is nothing more than than convenience. There are those who are doing nothing more than conforming to the environment around them, whether it is a Christian society or a Christian school or a Christian home. And they conform simply for the purpose of convenience. But their faith is far from tested. It's far from tried. It has far from having been confronted with the real issues of life and death and eternity. And so it is really an untested and unconfirmed, and in many cases, an untrue faith. But saving faith, the faith that Paul is talking about in the book of Romans, is a faith that has been confronted with the most difficult situations of life. And it has taken consideration of the real problems that this life poses. And it's chosen to face those difficulties by placing its hope, not ultimately in its own judgment, but ultimately in God and the promises of His Word that answers those difficulties. Now, this is uh, nowhere seen more beautifully than the life of Abraham. And listen to what Paul says about him. And then, most particularly in the end of this chapter, how he establishes the pattern for our faith in the promise of the resurrection of Christ in similar fashion to Abraham. He will pick up in verse 16 where he says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also 
to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Really, what you have as you come to the end of Romans chapter 4 is a string of of coordinating conjunctions and prepositional phrases. It is grammatically a mess to work through. But really the main, the, the main idea launches out of verse 14. If the adherents of the law are to be heirs, faith is null and void. And Paul uses that to launch then into a uh, a little bit of a presentation, we might say an exposition of what genuine true faith does and what it is. And with that, he gives all of these qualifications of what defined Abraham's life, what his faith looked like in the face of the real world in which he lived. All of these phrases, all of these clauses, all of these conjunctions and and prepositions all come together to point out some important truths about Abraham's faith. And in it we will see these, what we might call true characteristics of saving faith. This is what a real believer looks like. And while the historical particulars might be different for Abraham, while the, the, the situations which he was confronted with may not be exactly the same for you and me, the nature of our faith will be, as Paul says at the end of the chapter, exactly the same. And specifically, Paul highlights five facets of saving faith that, that really radiate from the life of Abraham through this passage, these five facets of saving faith that will be true for all of us who are believers. The first one is this, that faith focuses on the specific promises of God. Faith focuses on the specific promises of God. And we take note that Paul, when he comes to describe Abraham's faith, he's not talking about a man who launched out in the name of faith to set his heart on whatever he wanted and then tried to disguise those selfish goals under the guise of faith. That isn't faith. It isn't the faith that Abraham exhibited. There's no indication that Abraham went through his life 
as a man of faith, expecting, therefore, that God was going to work miraculously in every situation so that his life would be one continuous stream of extraordinary experiences or miraculous deliverances all as a result of his faith. That's not what Paul presents to us. Faith, in other words, is not an excuse for men and women to claim whatever they want and to give some air of religious virtue to it, when really all it is are the enshrining of the desires of their flesh. That kind of emphasis on faith in many circles, even in the church today, has more in common with the expectation of luck or chance than it does with faith. What Paul's talking about here isn't some nebulous sense of luck. It isn't some risk on chance that so many people are pursuing today. Faith is not some excuse to believe or demand anything from God that you may want. It is particularly focused on the specific promises of God. And it's in the context of Romans 4 that Paul has one specific promise in mind. It is the promise that God gives to Abraham when Abraham was in his presence. That's what he says in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. This, it appears, is a reference to Genesis 17, where we read in the opening verse of that chapter, God appeared to Abram when he was 99 years old. The Lord came to Abram at that time, and he said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer will you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham literally means the father of a multitude. So Paul's not presenting the picture of a man who was sitting around and deciding on what he wanted or hoping after some sort of uh, achievements in this life and making claim to that on some premise of faith. This is a man who is responding specifically to a word from God, a specific promise, a divine revelation or a special revelation, as we might say. And even in verse 18, Paul refers again to the fact that Abraham believed, as he says at the end of that verse, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That's the emphasis of Scripture. Faith is the result of our encounter with the promises of God. Or as Paul will say later on in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is a challenge not to believe that God will answer everything according to your whim and desire or that every obstacle that you face in life will be overcome by some miraculous intervention or, or that somehow God's going to rescue you out of every distress in your marriage or your health or your career or whatever it might be. P- 
People frame their ideas of faith this way, and then once you face difficulty, their question to you then, what good is your faith? Because their notion is that faith is supposed to be this sort of incantation that you that you chant over your problems and it springs you to some sort of miraculous escape. It's not what Paul's describing with Abraham. Abraham heard the word of God and he responded by believing. In fact, for Abraham, he lived in in a time before the Old Testament was written, before the New Testament was written. It wasn't that he had all this scrolls of Scripture to work through and, and to believe. But he was responding to specific promises that God gave him by special visitations, special appearances, unique among all the people of the earth in his day. For you and I, however, this means that we respond not looking for audible voices and special visitations, but for a response, or in a response, I should say, to the specific promises and commands and truths revealed to us in Scripture. It is the nature of genuine saving faith that always responds to God's truth in this way. Secondly, we can know by what Paul says here that faith, genuine saving faith, remembers the character of God. It remembers the character of God because while faith is responding to the promises of God, as I said, it isn't some charm or some incantation of a spell that we simply enunciate when we are in the face of trouble. These aren't just impersonal principles collected by wise men over time that we try to apply to our life. They're not just some sage wisdom. Every promise of God is effective because it is backed by the power and the wisdom and the righteousness of God. It is God's nature which gives power to His Word. It is His ability to back it up and fulfill it. As the Lord speaks through Isaiah, Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken. I'll bring it to pass. I've purposed. I will do it. So here's God Appealing to the uniqueness of his own character as a reason to believe his word. And so when we hear the word of God, we believe it because the character of God that stands behind it. Now, this is exactly what Paul's telling us here about Abraham. He believed the word of God, he believed the promises because he comprehended the power of God. To bring all this to pass. Specifically, he says in verse 17, Abraham understood that God, at the end of that verse, the one in whom he was one in whom he believed was the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things which do not exist. This is a specific reference to the fact that Abraham had been given a promise. 
when he was 99 years old, having no children, his wife barren for their entire married life. And in spite of all that, God promising him that he would still, or or Sarah would still conceive and give forth a son for them. Paul sets this in contrast, in fact, the God who gives life from the dead. You'll look down in verse 19, because he says, Abraham considered his own body as good as dead. He was 99, he was well beyond the procreational years, if you will, from from a natural standpoint, he was dead. And he considered literally, it says in that same verse, the the deadness of Sarah's room, necron is the, the root word for both the deadness of his body, the deadness of Sarah's womb. ESV translates it barrenness, but it's the same word. And so Paul is presenting this very intentional contrast here. Abraham was forced to believe in the face of all of these realities, in the face of everything he was observing, in the face of the facts, he was forced to believe in this. He was led to believe in this. And the reason he believed was because of the character of God, because this was a God who he says can raise people from the dead. In fact, this is already hinting where Paul's going at the end of the chapter, as we said. This becomes the focus of Paul's comparison between Abraham's belief and our belief. Paul emphasizes the role of Christ's resurrection in our faith and in our justification. But specifically, he says, Abraham believed because he believed God as the one who could raise what was dead or who was dead... And even that he calls, he says in verse 17, calls into existence things that do not exist. That phrase could simply be a reference to the fact that God was going to call forth all of these nations which had not yet been seen through the loins of Abraham, even though they didn't exist. Or it could be a reference back to God's ability to call the world into existence out of nothing at the moment of creation, what we call sometimes ex nihilo creation, that the, the fundamental conundrum of the atheists, the inability to explain where matter came from. We know where it came from because the Word tells us where it came from. God spoke and it came into existence. God created when there was nothing. And among all the proposed arguments out there for the beginning of the universe, it is the only reasonable, the only reasonable proposal. This was a man who was not unreasonable in his thinking. He wasn't unreasonable in his faith. He was reasoning properly with all of the facts on the table, and one of the dominant facts that, that dictated his mind was that God created all things. That out of nothing, when there was no matter, when there was no energy, when there was no light, God was able to make things exist which did not exist. And so what a small thing it would be for Him to create nations. 
much less a son from even a barren womb. Abraham understood this because he understood the character of God. This is where his faith was founded. This is where he focused when he thought about the promises of God. In the same way, we believe in the promise of a resurrection because we believe in a God who can create and recreate, right? If God could form from the dust of the earth a man, breathe breath into his nostrils, is it any amazing thing that he could do it again and again and again? It isn't just the promise of the resurrection. All of God's promises are built on His character. They're built on His righteousness. They're built on His faithfulness. They're built on His goodness. And it's all those attributes of God, all those, all those characteristics of God. They are the realities that fill His promises with power for the believer. That's the way faith operates. It focuses on the specific promises of God, but it's the character of God that's at the heart of the faith. And then thirdly, Abraham's example teaches us that faith rejects natural reason as the sole criteria of its evaluation. I mean, to complete the picture, you have to mention this. That not only is it weighing the character of God, but it is, we might say, discounting what can be known by finite man. It is discounting what can be observed with two mere human eyes. As Paul says in verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. This is the real heart of Paul's message about Abraham's faith. In hope, he believed against hope. Faith, in other words, moves in opposite directions When it comes to reason and rationale, that's a paradox, the paradox of faith that many people cannot understand. They assume that because it it might set aside naturalistic reasoning, that it therefore sets aside all reasoning. But that's not what what was at work in Abraham's life. Faith rejects the conclusions of natural reasoning and rationality, but it isn't irrational. It has a very rational basis for its understanding and hope. But it's not the evidence and reason that normal people, or people I should say normally focus on. Its reason and rationale are based on God. You see, the skeptic The skeptic and the atheist want to picture a Christian as someone who has buried their head in the sand, who wants to conveniently ignore the hard realities that scientific observation makes all around them. But that doesn't describe Abraham here. He was not a man who was ignoring the difficulties 
of empirical science. He understood the difficulties that the natural world posed to his faith. In fact, the scripture says he considered them, he thought about them, he pondered them. He took a hard look at the natural circumstances in his own life, the phenomenon of nature, the reality that he and his wife were far past childbearing years. He reflected on the facts of his situation. He took in all of the available information. He clearly was aware of where it pointed in and of itself. It pointed to childlessness. It pointed to hopelessness. It pointed to defeat. But it wasn't the only facts and information that he was interested in. Because God had spoken. And God had taken Abraham out and pointed him to the stars of the heavens and said, So shall your offspring be. And so it was the full scope of all of that data that Abraham took into consideration when he was making his choice. Atheists would want you to think that faith only exists in the dark or darkness of ignorance about the realities of science and observation, that the only way you can sustain your belief is by ignoring all of that data. And we would say the only way that they can sustain their unbelief is by ignoring the data of God, by selectively looking only at one side, far from being afraid of scientific information. We take it in, but we balance it with the full picture of everything that has been given to us. Faith is not the playground of the naive. It's not the result of people simply willing to suspend their mental faculties and put to death their reason. Abraham was anything but that. Because he was staring at the stark realities that the natural world confronted him with. But factoring in the reality of God. And in that sense, his faith was very reasonable. It made all the sense in the world. This is how Abraham could believe, as Paul says, in hope and against hope at the same time. Against hope as defined solely by natural means, but in hope as defined in the light of God's sovereign rule. Another way to say this is faith's reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person who is giving the information. It depends on the ability to know the truth and the commitment to sharing the truth. And in this case, there is no human being ever born who knows more than God and no human being ever born who is more reliable than God, who is more trustworthy than God. Every man and every woman and child have proven their propensity towards selfishness, towards deceit, and towards error. It's very reasonable in every way then that those of us who trust would put our trust in the only one who's never told a lie, who's never missed a fact. We face the realities of this world. We face the realities of empirical science. We face all those things. We know, we know that on their own, 
if they are considered apart from the Word of God, that death happens to everyone, that no one that we've ever observed has been raised from the dead. But at the same time, we know what God's Word tells us. We know the testimony of the apostles. We know the testimony of the church. We know the gospel. We know that God does raise from the dead because He's already done it one time. Because He's already given us the first fruits in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if the naturalist or the atheist claims that our faith is contrary to knowledge, then we have to ask, which knowledge? Contrary to what knowledge? The knowledge that comes just by your own rationalistic reasoning or the knowledge that incorporates the full scope of everything we know. What we know about the world and what we know about God because of what He's revealed to us. Because to men and women of faith, to factor out the Word of God is to reason with only partial knowledge. Well, there's two more characteristics of saving faith in the rest of this passage that are going to enrich our minds, but they'll need to wait for next week. Um, Let's stand together as we're dismissed with prayer and a song. As you're standing, um, I understand a passage like this, a subject like this can come across as uh, maybe a little bit sophisticated or even scholarly or whatever it might be, but really it's where you live. Because there are some here who have embraced a faith only for convenience. There are some here whose faith is only held out of really deference to someone else, a parent, a spouse, a friend. But the faith that saves, the faith that God counts as righteousness to you in the end, is a faith faith that has faced all of these questions. And after hearing all the arguments of man, ultimately puts its trust in God. That's our challenge to you today, that you wouldn't leave here, that you wouldn't depart still accepting yourself as the final arbiter of truth. You're not, and God is. And it's the call to you today that you'd bow your knee before Him, embrace Him by faith, and receive His salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for You, thankful for the fact that You have made Yourself known, that You've given us not only what we see, but what we hear through Your truth and believe. Completes not only the picture of the world around us, but it it gives us hope. Hope that can stand even against hope. Hope that can flourish in all the difficulties of life. It can grow. It can secure us. It can stabilize us and ultimately can save us. Lord, we bless You today that You didn't leave us to our own devices. But as You came to Abraham and made Yourself known, You've made Yourself known by the Word. 
Today, Lord, we cling to it and to its promises as the most reliable truth we could ever know. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.